Amen, amen. Hey, why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in 13 through 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, looking at Jesus' command there to be salt and light. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together to study your word, to do so openly, to do so in relative safety and peace. And we pray that you would be near to those this morning who are neither gathering in safety nor in peace. But you would be especially near to them, that they would feel your presence, that they would be assured of your provision for them, regardless of their relative safety. God, we continue to ask that you would move in our midst, that we would see <clears throat> revival break out in our town, in our community, in our homes, and that through us submitting ourselves fully to you, not living lives of false piety or kind of episodic religiosity, but living lives fully devoted to who you are, who you have called us and made us to be. Help us to be gracious when we disagree with others. Help us to be quick to forgive when others are not gracious to us. Father, we pray for the other churches of our community that you would give them just continued growth, that they would experience your grace and your mercy, that they would be loving places where a man or woman could walk in off the street and experience and know that they are loved by you that they are forgiven by you and Jesus. And we pray for their pastors, that they would be men of your word. Pray for their people, that they would follow well, that they would submit to you in all things. And we pray for our community, that it would be better by our presence, that our presence would mean something. It means something in our places of work. It would mean something as we go to the store. It would mean something in our neighborhood, that our presence would have a distinct difference. And Father, I pray for us in our time of gathering this morning that you would destroy our hearts, the strongholds of sin, all the ways we seek to deceive ourselves and hope that you are deceived or misled. God, that you would awaken us to the reality of our great need for you. And God, you would just give us a rich time studying your word and growing together. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Chances are, if you have uh, grown up in the church, then you have heard uh, this teaching before. You've heard people get up and talk about being salt and light, and, and some of you might even be able to do much better than I'm going to do this morning, and so we're not going to test that. But you're, you're familiar with the adage, with this teaching of kind of being salt and light, and this is the great difficulty, I think, whenever we step into passages that are familiar, we seem to know them. Man, we write ourselves a check. We say, look, I've just got to sit here for the next however long he drones on for, and then I'm done. And so I've got little or no application I've got to make to my heart. I've got little or no application I've got to change my way of behavior. And so that's kind of how we come into easy, <clears throat> easily remembered passages. So let me just beg of you for a moment, please don't do that, okay? If you do that, you should have stayed home because... Every encounter we have with God's word 
beckons us and it calls us. And so there's no kind of approaching familiarity to the point of where we no longer need it. We always need a fresh and new application of his word to our heart. And we need that even so this morning. Now I want us to understand something. In this really tightly packed statement here in 13 through 16, where Jesus calls us to be salt and he calls us to be light, this is necessarily the outworking of all the internal qualities he's been prescribing to our hearts, starting in verse 3 of chapter 5. And so if you've missed the idea that these, these Beatitudes, where he starts in verse 3 and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then he says, blessed are those who mourn and are meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We have to recognize that these interior qualities that Jesus describes are normative for Christian life. In essence, it should be, if you were to go to your spouse, your friend, and, and somebody who knows you, and say, would you describe the interior qualities of my life? What they should be able to do is to go in to write out the Beatitudes. Now, for most of us, we'd raise our hands and say, I'm failing miserably. Raise your hand and say, I'm failing miserably. Some of you are just lying terribly. <clears throat> and so we recognize that although these things aren't always true of us, that this is the thing that Jesus is calling us towards, that the Beatitudes always be true of us, that they are the very interior quality of our life. And this is so incredibly important because when we get to verse 13 and he says, you are the salt of the earth, what he means to say is because these things are true of you, because you're poor in spirit, because you're meek, because you're broken, because you want to be used by Jesus and you recognize he's the only good thing, because these things are true of you, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And you play those things out in every sphere of influence you've got to the utmost of your ability and to the full equipping of God's grace in your life, okay? So these are all these interior attributes that he's been building up and kind of destroying our inner strongholds in our heart and leading us to the point where we fully recognize we need God's grace to sustain us. We need God's, we need God's grace to enable us and he rolls out and he says, as these things are true about you, you are, in fact, some translations say it this way, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Now, I don't know what you think about salt. I love salt. I use it a lib to kind of this liberal amount to where I see Valerie look at me and then I see Bryce follow me, right? It, I, I like my food to taste salty. I like it. I like the way salt tastes. And so typically, when we come into this passage, you're making this distinction of salt of the earth on your understanding of, of salt and what you most readily use salt for. Now, I got I get news for you. He's not writing to you. He's writing to a first century audience. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's not talking about it primarily in terms of seasoning your food, of, of getting that bowl of soup or that popcorn or, or that cucumber, whatever it is you put salt on, right? That apple, whatever it is you put salt on, he's not talking about making things taste better. But for a lot of us, this is the way we absolutely engage Christianity. We think that, that our presence in other people's lives just enhance them. Like they make them better. We are the additive that gives their life flavor. 
This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about salt primarily in terms of two things that would have made great sense and ready application to a first century audience in terms of purification and preservation. Purification and preservation. There is this ready understanding that when you would apply salt to something, it could have a purifying effect on it. It could have a purifying effect on it. And so you, you add salt to water that's gone bad and it, it can make the water better. Now, I've never tried that. I've never had that issue, but this is one of the things they would understand. They would understand, okay, well, salt is working to purify, and so he'd say, you're the salt of the earth, and he'd say, okay, well, in some sense, our presence amongst community is working to purify. It's working to kind of bring to mind that there is some decaying effect there, and he'd say, that's right, and so that leads to the second thing. It purifies, and it preserves, one of the great problems they had in the first century, outside of just kind of, uh, of uh, you know, kind of modern air conditioning, not having that, I see that as being a big issue. We recognize that they also didn't have the ability to cool and keep and preserve meat over a long period of time. So what would they do? They take out that big slab of meat and they begin to rub salt all over it. You know, apparently just to get ready to smoke it a little bit later on. But they were kind of going through and they're preserving meat in this regard. Christian. One of the things that God absolutely has for you and is preparing for you and is calling you towards is to be a preserving effect in your community. And when you think about that, think about it in terms that God absolutely has you as one who is seeking to preserve something. No, he's not seeking to have you preserve your street or the beautification or some ritual or tradition. And this is why we start with the idea of purification. Your life applied to those you come into contact with should drive them towards purity. It should drive them towards purity. And then your life walking in concert with them should stave off the devastating effect of sinful decay. Unfortunately, we miss this a lot of times. We're incredibly annoying, right? We can be. And so what we do in terms of purification is just pointing out over and over and over again, all the various ways that everybody around us is wrong and how we're absolutely right. And if they would just take what we say is right, their lives would be better. Raise your hand if you've done this this week. Don't, don't, don't. <clears throat> I saw you in the back. We'll talk later. Do you recognize how incredibly off-putting that is? You know the only reason we're able to be salt is because God has worked his, his immense and tremendous grace, forgiveness, and redemption in our hearts. So when we go to people, we are absolutely testifying. We're going to set the mood. <laughs> Thank you. I saw a glory in the back. <laughs> Baptism to follow. There we go. No, that's fine. Where was I? Man, when we testify to the goodness and loving kindness of our God, his grace and how it's really worked effect in our heart, we're describing, man, this is how God being close to me has worked purification in my heart. So I'm not describing to somebody, look, man, my life was a mess and I set these 12 things up and I did these 12 things and I'm so much closer to God now and, and this is how I stay close to God. Instead, we come into somebody and say, can I tell you that according to the scripture and according to what I know of my life, that it was a complete mess. I was scripturally dead and set apart from God, but in his goodness and loving kindness, he drew near to me. Check this out. I was awful and he was amazing. He came near to me and he has made me pure and whole. And this is what it took for me. 
confessing that I was not pure and whole, that I was wholly unrighteous and following my own waywardness and wickedness. But he's made me pure. He's made me pure. And so our lives are a testimony to that. And when we describe that process over and over and over again, God can work from the impression of our lives onto other people's lives, purity for them too. And then this kind of building effect of purity is beginning to kind of work of the, the, the preservation of those around us, the preservation of their lives. But I want you to think about something in terms of salt. Say this is a bottle of salt, and I'm I'm cooking up just a whole bunch of popcorn and whatever, and I take this bottle of salt, and I just begin to throw it at the popcorn over and over and over again. Is it going to have any effect on that popcorn? My wife's going to look at me like, what in the world are you doing, right? How does it begin to have effect? Does it have effect if I set it over here, and, and I look at it and say, now salt, I want you to look intently at that popcorn, and I want you to think positive, salty thoughts about that popcorn. I come over, and I begin to taste it, and think, mm, this is some salty stuff. You know what you did. You know what you did. Is that going to do it? No, this is stupid, right? Oh, my word. This is the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard so far this morning. Well, there's more. <laughs> Recognize that salt only has an effect when it comes into contact with it, right? This is what Jesus, this is, what Jesus is describing. The saltiness of your life is only effective on those around you when you are in close proximity with them. You are the salt of the earth. The Beatitudes are true of you in Jesus. And they're going to have zero effect on anyone around you if you don't invest yourself in their lives. And that's also true. One of the reasons we don't see as many people's lives change is because we want to be this salt who is this kind of insular. I want to be safe. I want to be secure. And I want to only hang out with other people who are also salt. And there, I want to let my hair down a little bit. I'm going to be a little glory, a little hallelujah. Talk to them about how bad, terrible, and awful life is. And then commiserate with them about how bad, terrible, and awful everybody out there is. But that's not our call. That's not where he has you. Can I tell you that on the street where you live, in the place where you work, and in the place where you shop, you can be an agent of change. And this is what God has called you to be. He has not called you to sit there and bring judgment on everyone around you, but he has placed you there so that your life in close proximity and on application to their lives may bring about change. This is what he's called us to. This is what he's called you to. So as we sit here and, and we think about and, and, and recognize those that we know who need the gospel. Man, they need Jesus. And God has placed you, friend, to bring the gospel to them. He has placed you to be this person who comes into their life, who shows them the gospel, who befriends them, and due to the close proximity of your life to their lives, begin to result in purification and ultimately in preservation. But let's look at what Jesus gets to next, the subject of what happens when you mess up. Jesus says, but what happens if salt loses its taste? How shall its saltiness be restored? And the fascinating thing about this verb that's translated here has lost its taste. It actually gives us the picture of becomes foolish. 
It's, it's where we get the idea of being a moron. This idea of there are occasions in the course of living my life, the habits I've picked up, the ways that I have spoken to people, the forgiveness I've not extended to them, the mistakes I've made that they know about, my saltiness, the saltiness of my life, the way I outwardly live has no effect on them. We tend to call this hypocrisy. I mean, they've known something about me, they've known something very high-minded about me, and they've seen me fail and fail miserably, but still call others to this high bar that I'm no longer reaching, I'm not attaining. And so what happens? I mean, they close their ears, they don't want to hear it, they want nothing to do with me, and so we have whole segments in our lives. It's our brother, it's our, it's our mom, it's our dad, it's our sibling, it's our spouse, it's our friend, it's our coworker. So this is what he's saying here. This is, this is, this is difficult. There are people in your life that if you're to walk up to and share the gospel, they're like, man, you don't believe that. You see, what do you mean I don't believe that? Of course I believe that. I was at church on Sunday. I believe this. I'm talking to you, aren't I? And so what about six months ago? You're engaging in this. What about three months ago? What about last week? What about that text? What about that thing you shared on Facebook? What about this? What about that? Jesus' question is, how shall it gain back its saltiness? I'm just going to tell you, there are people in your life for whom you will never regain a foothold. You have completely messed up. And one of the things he's telling us in here is that you may never get another shot to be impactful for the gospel in their lives. And you may think that's a real shame, and it is. But what it absolutely shouldn't do in you it should not lead you to begin to block off relationships in your life and say, well, if that's the case, I'm just not going to engage with anybody. Salt comes into contact with people. You are the salt of the earth. Just because you messed up with this group over here or this person over here doesn't mean you are absolved of the culpability of being engaged with everyone else. So this morning, we can begin to think, we can begin to process who God is calling us to be engaged with. I want you to understand why this is so important. Because he goes on, he says, if it loses its saltiness, it's no longer worthwhile of anything other than to be cast out and trampled over. Salt is not good for your soil. It, it, can, it can kill the grass. It's really great to, to, if you want to spell somebody in something's yard and you want it to be there for a long time. But outside of that, it's just not all that helpful. There are people for whom we've been in contact and have been engaged in their lives, and our lives never again potentially will have a positive effect for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this warning drives us in some sense to double down on the grace of God in our lives, recognizing his forgiveness of us, not continuing to live with that, and giving ourselves all the more to new relationships and to new people that we may be involved and invested with. Now, I hope what you don't hear me saying this morning is just cut your losses and move on. The grace of God may give you an opportunity to invest in those people's lives. In fact, their refusal to hear you and be engaged with you, although you repeatedly tell them, man, I love you and I have failed and God has forgiven me. That may be the thing over some period of time where they say, you know, I hated you. I didn't care for you. I thought you were a complete and utter hypocrite. 
But for 30 years, you've proved me wrong. And I'm ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because for 30 years, I thought you were a hypocrite. And 30 years, you have been faithful. And when you have failed, you've been a testimony to God's grace and forgiveness. He calls us to long work, not short work. So we're the salt of the earth. Next, he calls us and he says, you are the light of the world. So salt works by proximity. Salt has to be in close uh, application. It has to be in contact with what it's affecting. But light is that thing which can be observed from a great distance, right? And so if you live in the country or if you've ever driven in West Texas, you can see light long before you, long and long, and you're like, how big is Texas? And long before you ever reach your destination. Now this phrase here, he says, you're the light of the world. Some of us aren't the most bubbly of people, and I'm saying that as somebody who's not the most bubbly of people. In fact, if you describe me as bubbly, you're probably not in my phone. <laughs> bubbly. <laughs> Recognize that we are only ever light in so much as we are found in Jesus. John 8, 12, Jesus speaking says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Recognize that, that being light bearers happens because of our relationship through faith with Jesus Christ. God doesn't look at you and say, look, everybody else is, is kind of dark and miserable and they're really going through this emo phase, but you are bright and a light bearer. This is not what he's saying. Jesus, we recognize, is the one who is light and we are found in him. Now, what is light doing? Jesus, in his nighttime discussion with Nicodemus, said these words in John 3, 19. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So we recognize light is functioning in a couple of different, a couple of different levels here. One of the things, what does light do in the midst of darkness? It pushes darkness back, right? It pushes darkness back. And so our presence, our observable presence, our demeanor, our speech, what somebody who's not close to us can see should see that darkness does not dwell in ease close to us. And why is that? It's because they ultimately they see Jesus through us. They see our lives fully submitted to Jesus, to his teaching. They see that through us. And so they recognize that light has no association in our lives. So Jesus is going to give us a couple of different examples of kind of how light functions. And so the first thing he says is a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, what's he talking about? Is it Jesus issuing a challenge and saying, look, I want you to go out. I want you to find a city that's set on a hill and I want you to hide it. And we're going to play an epic game of hide and seek city edition. Is that what he's saying? No, of course not. The evidence that Jesus is talking about is in an area that's largely full of plain. And if you see a city way up on a hill, they cannot hide it. They cannot obscure it. He's not talking about dousing every lantern. He's not talking about putting curtains over the windows. He's saying it is ridiculous and stupid to suppose that you could hide this city. It's, it's ludicrous. The thought that somebody would hide it, Jesus says, is just absolutely Ludicrous. He says it, it, it cannot be hidden. So he moves to the second one. He says it's equally ludicrous for a person to light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
Imagine this, you're in this home and it's one room and you're in there and it's dark. There's no general electric. There's no light bulb uh, to pull. There's none of these things. And so you go in and you light a lamp. So you have this little clay lamp. It's got oil in there and a wick coming out the top. You light it and you're like, everybody can see. Okay, good. And you set it down and then you bring a bowl and you just put it over the top of that. What would the other people in the room with you say? You moron. What is, what's up with that? Why did you do that? It makes no sense. A person would not go through the process of making this thing catch on fire, which is always fun, and then taking it and covering it. It's not serving its function. It's not being allowed to serve its purpose. The purpose of the lamp in that situation is to cast light and to give illumination. But what have you done? You've engaged in this carefully clad process of obscuring its ability to do what it was created to do. Instead, Jesus says, but you put it on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Christian, you are light. You are light. And your life should give light to all those around you. People should clearly be able to see Jesus in you. And what this is not a call to do is to seek to obscure or make more palatable the light you exude, the light that comes out from you. But unfortunately, this is what a lot of us do. Man, I've got church vernacular. I've got church language I use when I'm here. Oh, brother, how are you? Pleased to meet you. Pleased to meet you. God bless. God bless. That voice that accompanies it, that's how you know I've engaged in church language. I've got, you know, sports language, you know, whatever, a lot of grunting. It's all monosyllabic. I've got work language, it's, it's high-minded or whatever it is. And so I've got all these various base levels of vocabulary that I engage in, depending upon what scenario I find myself in. And I've got mannerisms that follow suit. What we find, Christian, is that you are only ever one thing. And you're only ever that thing in every context that you go to. And so what Jesus says here is you are light. And so when you are at church and you are there, you are light. And the light that you are and the light that the people have around you is also shining back into your life. And it is showing the areas of deficiencies in you. And how does that happen? Because, man, I don't obscure things in my life. So somebody comes up and says, Matt, what are you struggling with? I am able to freely tell them the things I'm struggling with. Why? Because I'm not looking to impress them. I'm not looking to live a life which is, is glorifying me, but is glorifying God. And so all the more I, I, I communicate my failures so that they might see this is a brother that's struggling. This is a brother that is failing. And they recognize the goodness and the graciousness of God flowing in my life and they desire it for their own. We're light. And it creates real problems. Because we step out of kind of this church world and we begin to kind of come over here to the secular. And if you try and boldly live your faith and belief in Jesus Christ and other people see you and they hear you, this creates awkwardness, right? It creates awkwardness. Because all this time we've been trying to kind of clad our Christianity in that which is more palatable 
that which is easier for them to digest, that which is easier for them to take. But what happens when light steps into the midst of darkness? It reveals darkness. And just like we're annoying with salt, so too we are annoying with light. We go in and we bring this kind of Q-beam of Christianity and we hone it in on someone and, and we begin to expose all the ways that they are a terrible, awful, horrible person. Man, we do that with neo-Nazis and we do that with people of different political affiliations. We do that with people of different color and we do that with people with just different opinions. Irrespective of their ideology, we tend to have the, want to bring into this focus of showing how fallen and depraved they are so we feel better about our own inadequacies. That's not the light he calls you to be. The light of Jesus, when he comes in, and it shows us our failures in our hearts. It's this light that's, that's not jarring, but it's this light when you see it. You recognize its welcoming and warm embrace. It's like you've been out in the cold. And you can feel your fingers going numb, and you can feel your toes going numb, and you just shake all over. And you walk into a warm cabin and the fire's going and you can feel yourself begin to thaw. And you can feel yourself to begin to be drawn to sit by the warmth and embrace of that fire. This is what it means to be light. That our presence, that the recognition of Jesus in us by those around us causes them to want to get closer to us because that's the closest to Jesus they think they can be. And then in the midst of this, we show them that we are so far and impoverished and removed from who Jesus is, and we show them Jesus. This is what it is. So Jesus calls us in verse 16 as we begin to close out and look at this. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 6, 1, Jesus opens up and he says, don't live out your religiosity so that others see you and celebrate you. Here, we see why. When other people see Jesus in you, what we want it to do is to lead to them to glorify God. Effectively, we want people to see Jesus in us, to experience Jesus with us, and to praise and glorify God. We want them to come to know who he is and that in a saving way. And when we are called to do this, we recognize our Christianity cannot, can never, has no place to be worked out in private and behind the scenes. So he calls you in your workplace to be a Christian, to be a full-bore Christian. He calls you in your home with kids and with family members who know your faults, to be a Christian, to let the salt of the gospel come into contact with them, to allow the light of the gospel to expose your failings and theirs, and to do that in beautiful community. He calls us as a church that we should together be glorifying him, that our good deeds should always point to Jesus and never to us calls us in every sphere of life that you can think of to be both salt and light.
This is the calling of being a Christian. The God who has transformed our internals through the Beatitudes, declared those things to be true of us, now calls us to apply those same principles to everyone we come into contact with, everywhere we go, all the time. Let me pray. God, I thank you that there is grace in our failure, that there is forgiveness in our falling short. What an incredibly high calling to be salt and light. We fail so many times, but your grace meets us at the point of our failure, and we are restored to you. So God, I pray for those this morning who, man, they thought church and Christianity was just something they did on Sundays, Wednesdays, or occasionally when they were feeling bad, that you would offer a corrective to their heart. Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. They would recognize you as Lord and King themselves has fallen. That they would recognize the salvation that Jesus offers in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that they would latch on to that. That the goodness they see in themselves would be that of Jesus. And they would seek forgiveness for their sins in him. So God, I pray that you would be with us in these moments that we have to sing, to glorify you, to worship your name. You'd just be moving through our hearts and showing us all the various ways that, that we can be salt and light for you in those places you have placed us, in those places you have sent us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.